0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 16 of Daffy's Roundtable. We're joined this week once again by a member of the Herpetoculture Network. He is the co-host of Snakes and Stogies and the Venom Exchange Radio. But for this conversation, we're moving away from snakes and we're talking about a super interesting desert dwelling gecko that I've been hoping to learn a lot more about. The nephorous gecko, also known as the Knobtail gecko. My guest has been working with multiple subspecies of the nob-tailed gecko, and really it was his Instagram that first brought my attention to these beautiful geckos. So I'm super excited to be having this conversation with him. Without any more blabbering from me, please help me welcome Phil Wolf. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Looks like it's working this time. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. The pleasure's all mine. Um, so already said this in the intro, but um you've done a lot of work with the herpeticulture network and you are one of the hosts of Snakes and Stogies. Yes. Sir. Um So why don't we start there? Uh, how did you uh start working with the Herpeticulture Network? Was it uh did you guys meet at a show? This is that is the big question. <laughs>
1: so we did not meet well so we did meet at a show but that was only like in person if that makes any sense right Uh, right so what had what had happened was um i had kind of gotten out of the reptile scene for a while um uh and forgive me my voice is a little messed up i'm just getting over being sick uh but Basically, I had kind of separated myself from what I'll call the community, not for any particular reason, just because I had worked with reptiles for importers, exporters, pet shops, you know, chain stores, whatever. And I kind of got out of it because when you do it day in and day out, it, it can be daunting and nobody wants to clean poo all day and then go home and clean more. So I kind of kept a few pets of my own and I was still doing the Venomous Mentor Program at Underground Reptiles Retail Store. But other than that, I was just kind of out of it. And I podcasts had become a thing. And I found the Herbert of Culture podcast. So I started listening. And then I saw there was a ton of social media stuff. And this guy, Justin, he just kept posting stuff over and over again. I was like, man, this guy is my kind of guy. Like he smokes cigars. He's got colubrids. Like he he's he's cool. And I start talking to him. And I start talking to Jake. and uh, And then Daytona reptile show, I think it was 2000 and I want to say either 18 or 19 maybe. I think maybe 18. I was going and I asked Justin, I said, hey, are you going? And he's like, well, I wasn't going to, but you know what? Yeah, a lot of my friends are going. I'll stop by. And we smoked cigars and I met Jake in person and I met Billy Hunt in person and it just snowballed.
0: And and now the herpeticulture uh, gang exists?
1: And now the herpeticulture <laughs> gang exists. 100%. That's awesome.
0: Okay, so um phil wolf how did knobtails.ig start how did you start your journey in reptiles
1: well eh, it's the same old thing you know mom will let you have a snake so you get a leopard gecko and awesome. you know sky's the limit and a lot of rubber snakes as a kid and you know rubber cobras in my mom's wicker baskets and uh I always wanted Knobtails, man. And like I told the guys on NPR, it had to have been rescuers down under because when you watch rescuers down under in theaters, because that's how old I am. Um, And you're like, there's a place called Australia. There are lizards with frills. Like, you know what I mean? There, there's yeah, there's, a, there's a, a Joanna lizard that eats eggs. Like this is, I have to learn more about this, right? For sure. And you stumble across all kinds of reptiles and snakes and geckos. And I was like, why is this? Gecko have no tail. What is going on here? And I just I became enamored with it, and I never kept them because they were really rare and very expensive. And I guess I maybe had been twenty eight or twenty nine at the time, and maybe even younger. And one of my good friends, Marcus, who uh, runs M and Ecological, him and I swap a lot of animals, and uh, I'll buy him stuff, he buys me stuff, vice versa. And he had won a um, an ameii in an auction for like 50 bucks. And he had it for like a year or two and was like, hey man, I don't want this thing anymore. Do you want this? And I was like, yes, 100% yes. So I took that AMI, and uh, the thing was geriatric. It was huge. It was like 60 grams if, if, you know, just shy of it. And I had that thing for a few years and I was like, wait a minute, I'm an adult. Like I'm a grown up. I can have whatever I want. Like yeah. I can afford to buy another gecko and I bought another gecko and another gecko and another gecko. <laughs> And then I was like, you know what? Nobody is. Everyone who keeps knobtails, they do a hell of a job of it. But no, there's no like knobtail page. You know what right, I mean? Right. And I just, I wanted to share wild photos. I wanted to share captive photos. I wanted to share husbandry tactics and just the love of the wiggle butts. You know? Yeah. And that's why I made nobtails.ig because there was none of that. And as soon as I did that, I'm not saying I take credit for it, but. A lot of the Asian breeders in uh, China and Japan they started making knobtail pages, and it kind of just exploded into this awesome knobtail Instagram
0: thing. It started a trend. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm a trendsetter per se. But... <laughs> no, that's awesome. And then, um, so you got the AMI—that was your first uh, subspecies. How many subspecies of the knobtail are in captivity? Or uh, first of all, how many are? Do you know how many are in existence, yeah. and then how many are in captivity? So
1: it's it's arguable um it's arguable as to what people consider a knobtail right. so if you go off of the nephris genus specifically i want to say there's currently nine like yeah it could be a mistake but it should be nine and then if you count under Wittosaurus, then you add two or three depending on who you ask and what papers you read for sure um but in the u.s there's about six uh, let me rephrase it in north america cuz i'll include you my fine canadian brother um yes. <laughs> there's there's about 7 or so in north america okay. um you've basically got the smooth complex which would be uh levy's and then levy's pelbarensis and then levy's uh occidentalis the occidentalis are more scarce okay. and most of the color morph stuff that's in the us is pelbarensis um you also have uh amii, uh, there is Asper, which is your prickly, and then you have the both banded nobtails, which would be your synchthus and your wheeler eye. Uh, there is Levisimus as well as delinai, and I'm trying to think what else is stateside. I'm That's impressive. Think. There's no I in North America. I don't care what anyone says. Uh, if they if they claim they have it, it's just a funky looking Asper. Um okay. And Is that because they
0: were never able to uh, export yeah, them yeah. out? Mm-hmm.
1: it was. It was. A, it's a Kimberley species. It's a very, very endemic species. And good luck getting it out of Australia.
0: Um, right. Good luck getting anything out of Australia. This right. Point. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, there are there are some people in Europe that claim they have it, and I personally, they don't look right. So even if they are Shayi or Shayi, excuse me, uh, they may be crossed with Asper at some point. I don't know. Uh, again, I'm not a taxonomist in that regard, but sure. but yeah, the I'm trying to think. There's probably one more in the in North America pet trade
0: that I'm forgetting.
1: But yeah, so that, that's your main core. And the ones that we see the most is honestly Synctus.
0: That's the one I was going to ask. So, those are the, yeah. the ones when people say the knobtail, that's the one they're referring to usually.
1: No, it's usually Ami. Oh,
0: it's usually Ami. Yeah, amii,
1: yeah. your, your centrillion knobtail. They're, they're the largest, they're the spikiest. Okay. They're the ones that come from the Red Center, Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. And uh, those are the ones that get the biggest I mean I made a joke about 60 grams but the average is probably about 40 45 grams is a big diesel female okay um, but yeah the 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 main knobtail that people at least in my opinion when people think a knobtail they knob-till. think of AMI.
0: okay yeah uh, I, I, I I'm pretty yeah you might thinking of the one that I saw at the store and like that's the general um, like my general idea of of I mean I'll just look it up now just to be to, to I'm actually talking about the same gecko, but I think it, you're right. I think it is the Amii. Yeah. Uh,
1: and the, and the synctus are, are probably the most prevalent. Uh, they're the least expensive. They're probably the easiest to care for in terms of being uh, forgiving as a species. Um, they usually range anywhere from 200 to 400 bucks, depending on size and coloration and stuff like that. So a lot more people have them, myself included. Simply because they are cheaper, they are more forgiving, and they're more readily available.
0: So Right. Um, so that actually is one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So every time I've seen them, uh, you, you said two to 400 bucks here in Canada, they're like, uh, six to 700. So let's say, let's forget that everything here is more expensive. They are generally a more, uh, more expensive gecko than your average gecko. Why is that? Are they just harder to breed? No,
1: it's not that they're harder to breed. I think it comes down to availability. I think it comes down to who's breeding them and then actually moving or selling the offspring. Um, they only have two eggs at a time. Now, one female may lay three or four clutches in a season, right. but that's still two eggs, two, two eggs. eggs, two eggs, two eggs. It's not like a, a rat snake or a python that's going to lay 15 or 20 eggs in one clutch. For sure. So the availability in that regard, you need more adults to make more babies to, to keep up with the demand. Yeah. Um, I also think that a lot of people uh, are apprehensive to import from Europe for any number of reasons. However, Canada is way easier. Let me rephrase that. It is way easier for someone to import from Europe into Canada because of laws. While mm-hmm. in the US, the local field offices for US fish and wildlife are very, very strict on Australian species. So if that person in that office says, you know what, no, we're not allowing it in, that's it. It's done. Yeah. So, like for example, my favorite knobtails asper. I've never seen one in person
0: because that, they're not available in north america well,
1: because they are they are available but i don't have the money to pay for them
0: you know right so how much do I they pay for uh
1: they range anywhere from two to eight grand a piece
0: right and then you're going to need at least like four or five to make a proper group out of them so yeah i, I yeah. see yeah <laughs> yeah okay wow mm-hmm. yeah very interesting okay um, and then when you do, when when they are bred, you're saying two, uh, three to four clutches. And then how how long is the incubation time? And then how long it before the... they're old enough to like sell, for example?
1: So it depends on the species. Um, right. Typically course, between yeah. yeah between like seventy and ninety days, depending on the species, depending on temperature and all that jazz. Um, one of the things I'm trying to correct about the knobtail community is the breeders that are very very su- successful are typically apprehensive to share their their tactics right it's it's not like the morelia community let's say where everyone literally shares everything for the most part right in the nobtail community if you've got 100 nobtail adults and you're really breeding you don't want the competition per se and a lot of these guys also have the old school attitude of "Well, it took me 20 years to figure this out why should i just tell you you do, do yourself do, do your own homework you figure it out which i understand but i disagree with you know what i mean because the Likewise. more people that breed them the more we'll have them and if you really love the animals we would want there to be a, a bigger availability of it you know what i mean for
0: sure yeah you want everybody to be want, like having one and then the more of them they are out there the more people learn about them too of course 100 percent, 100 percent. no okay that that, that does make so, yeah. a lot of sense yeah okay so we already covered that they are mostly an Australian species. Do they come from any? Are, are there any nobtails at
1: strictly mainland Australia? Strictly
0: mainland Australia. That's Very it. interesting. So yeah. then the what they call frog eye gecko is not considered totally a different. Nope. Totally different. Okay. Yeah. Very Technically, as,
1: as far as I'm concerned, the only true knobtails is the nephris genus. Okay. And if you want to include Underwoodosaurus, we can do that too because they were at one point nephris and shy of the tail being a different shape and the body structure being a little more lean they're very very similar in terms of physiology morphology and even genetics
0: okay so very interesting and
1: those are what we call the barking
0: geckos okay the under Under
1: underwoodosaurus yep
0: underwoodosaurus okay very cool and then, so, about that tail, what, what is, do we know what the function of the tail is? Why, it, like, why it's shaped like that? Uh, uh, do they question. fall off, like leopard gecko tails and other gecko tails?
1: Yes and no. So, it depends on the knobtail species. So, <laughs> knob that have a pronounced tail that retains uh, fat and moisture uh, after the vent, but before the knob, have the ability to drop their tail as a defense mechanism. I actually have a synctus that is a proven breeder. And I got her from my friend in Utah. He has no idea how or why she dropped her tail. Uh, She was in a container, a a tub, a rack system by herself for months. And it just, she just dropped it and it grew back. And what's interesting is when they do regenerate their tail, much like a leopard gecko or a fat tail gecko, it doesn't, it never looks the same, you know? Right. Theirs is almost just an entire knob. So the, just, just the part giant... that can't see
0: the fat yeah
1: so essentially the the fat reserves are still there but there's no definition to the tail it's just a giant almost looks like a keloid you know what i mean yeah uh, just like... big fatty blob right so i have i actually have a female that has that she eats she poops she breeds, like you know what i mean so life is grand for her but to this day we still don't know why she dropped it now if you look at the uh the prickly complex or uh the um uh Asper and Amii and chei they don't have that pronounced fatty tail. It literally right. tapers to the knob. So they are incapable of dropping their tail. I'm sure there have been cases where one got bit off by a predator or maybe it got injured in some degree and they may have lost their tail. But as far as I know, I've never seen, nor any of my colleagues have ever seen an Amyi, a Shayi, or an Asper with no tail. No tail. Okay. So uh, the simple. the knob itself we know is massively clustered with sensory organs and receptors, uh, major, majorly nerve-connected, uh, arguably more in-depth and more intricate than the face of a shark. Wow. So uh, we always joke like, well, don't touch the knob, don't touch the knob, don't touch the knob, because we don't know what it's doing to them. It could be pleasurable, shocking, it could be shocking, it could be yeah. you know painful, we have no idea. Um, I have a good friend in Queensland, Elliot Budd, and, uh, he was doing a lot of research with, uh, with wild aspers through, uh, the university that he was at and they studied the hell out of that knob. And other than knowing that it has sensory receptors in it, they still couldn't figure it out. So eventually I'm sure as science progresses, we'll learn more about it, but it's also not high up on the, 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 the list of things to prioritize, you know what I mean? Right. For
0: sure. Now I wonder, um. First of all, are they burbers, and how is their eyesight?
1: Eyesight is impeccable. Big, giant, beautiful eyes, okay. um, in, in, incredible night vision. Um, they can also regulate their pupil in my, I don't know if this is a fact or not, but from myself and some of my colleagues that deal with knobs, they can regulate their pupil on their own. So, you know, if you and I are in a dark room and we walk out in the sun and we go, oh man, my eyes. You know we don't have we don't control the pupil moving it just doesn't they can so there's times when i've like snuck in the room to take a photo at night and like i'll do like you know no flash long exposure on my cell phone and just kind of right. like try and get a picture and if you hold down the iphone for the live video you can watch them dilate their pupils in anticipation of my flash wow and, and at the same time we don't see it because we don't have that that capability in our vision but A lot of these uh, uh, high shutter speed cameras and video cameras and whether it's an iPhone or Android, whatever it is, there is an infrared light coming out at some point, an emitter coming out. And we can't see it, but I'm confident that they they can because you'll notice their eye move before I've even, you know, when I'm focusing on the cell phone or I'm focusing on the DSLR, you'll see them like do this
0: what's going on yeah because they
1: they see that infrared light um i tried using black lights i've tried using neon lights and they are very very keen on different uv spectrums in that regard because you also got to think about too is a lot of these geckos they're never out in daylight
0: they're these are
1: prim- primarily nocturnal species i mean i'm sure there are several that come out crepuscularly but you're not going to find a, a, a pilbarensis walking around the sand dunes at noon because it's going to crisp like bacon, you know? Right. Right. So these animals come out at night, they live in microclimates that are high humidity microclimates in a scorching hot environment. And uh, with the exception of some of the uh, lower elevation swampy asper that are in the Cape York area that have like a zebra patterning to them, with the exception of those knobtails, almost every knobtail is high heat, very, very arid desert with microclimates of high humidity.
0: That's so, very, very interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I asked that because I wonder if if uh, the tail kind of, I was going to say, maybe acts as if they can't see the bugs properly and it kind of, they feel the vibrations of the insects crawling oh, around them it. or something. Yeah, something like that. But if you're saying they have like impeccable uh, eyesight, so maybe that's, yeah. uh, but there, there might be something there. Um, yeah. Okay. So you said, uh, you just mentioned microclimates of humidity. How do you achieve that in your enclosures?
1: Um, It can be very, very simple as it can be as simple as paper towels and a plastic deli cup upside down as a hide cave, or you can make it in depth where you have different types of sandy loomy soil with rocks and crevices and nooks and crannies where I can lift up a rock. And spray the inside of the rock with a, a misting bottle, misting water, and then close it. And it will retain that humidity for a day or two or three before I need to mist it again. Um, it depends on the kind of keeper that you want to be. Uh, there are a lot of knobtail breeders that literally keep their breeder adults on a thin layer of sand, about an inch thick, two hide caves, a water dish, and some use a little bowl of calcium. I've never seen them eat calcium like a leopard gecko, but who knows? They might. I'm not watching them 24 7. Right. but do they do, do a that? very what's that i do, do not you, do that no. I, I dust everything uh, i do multivitamin and calcium and d3 and all that jazz uh, right. i do that for all my feedings but
0: you don't leave a play uh, it out but i
1: don't leave play plate out now okay. it, it just gets it, they kick sand in it and that yeah, ruins. yeah right yeah um but there are people that do very very simple setups like that or there are people that do the very in-depth naturalistic setups and just because it's in a tub or a rack doesn't mean it can't be naturalistic.
0: Of course. So, like, you online. just can't see how naturalistic it looks. It,
1: exactly. Of well, course. when you open the drawer, you can. Yeah, when you open the drawer. Exactly. <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah. Just from not from yeah. the outside. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so, like, for me personally, babies, I always keep babies on paper towels for the first six to eight months. It's not because they can't live on sand. They're from the wild. You know what I mean? Like, they're yeah, going to live they're... on sand and rock, right? right? But for me, I'm keeping this animal in captivity and I'm monitoring this baby's health. So I need to watch their poo. I need to watch their pee. I need to make sure that they're actually finding the food and eating the food and it's not just dying under a rock somewhere. You know what I mean? For sure. Um, uh, They're very, very vision-based like we talked about. So they want to hunt. It's like that scene in Jurassic Park where they leave the goat out for the T-Rex. Most knobtails don't necessarily eat from a little feeding dish.
0: They'll just wait and kind of... Yeah.
1: Now, if you take a cricket on tweezers and you play marionette right and you're moving the cricket in front of it and it catches the movement oh it'll die bomb that cricket but if you put a cricket in in a little dish the odds of it going to that dish in search of sustenance is very very slim so with babies i leave everything on paper towels for the first six to eight months and because the setup is simple i don't have the nooks and crannies to make the microclimate so by just misting the cold side of the cage I've now made a quote unquote microclimate because the paper towels are gonna to soak in the moisture and they're gonna retain the moisture for a lot of time. But now I have to be mindful of mold. I have to be mindful of bacteria just festering in there. So that means I'm I'm definitely cleaning the paper towel tubs way more than I do the sand tubs because substrate holds the poo better, you know?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. So. And then, so for the adult enclosures, you don't spray down, you just spray it in this. Oh, you, you do still do yeah. them spray? Yeah, I give How spray. Often?
1: Uh, usually the, on the adults, if if it is a simple setup, I'll only do it once or twice a week, if that, uh, maybe once every other week, depending on the time of year, uh, because my room stays around 30-40% humidity because I'm in South Florida. But I keep the AC running all the time because it's always hot in South Florida. For sure, yeah. Um, so if I notice condensation staying on the inside of the tub, I'm not going to spray. I'm going to let that condensation dry out first. When I know it's dry, then I'll do it again. But... I like misting sand and, and loomy soil because it holds the moisture, right? But as long as you're not soaking the sand, only the surface layers have that moisture. So what happens is it's going to dry and it's going to clump like kitty litter and it's going to make these clumps of sand. So now you've essentially, you're temporarily making a new environment because now it's not just calcium sand inside of a plastic tub. It's, chunks of pseudo rock and pseudo stone that if you squeezed it with your fingers it would crumble into sand but if the gecko walks on top of it it doesn't crumble. It's fine. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually I have a, a friend up north who um just got uh, oh, crap who makes it I want to say it's Exoterra. Exoterra makes a new soil Stop, sand. So, uh, they do the one that yeah. hardens
0: into a clay kind of thing. Right. So they like, do yes.
1: Zoom it has excavator sand. Right. I would never tell anyone to use excavator sand on knobtails, unless it was a big adult that's very established and it's more of a display enclosure, I wouldn't do it in a tub because if excavator clay gets wet, now it becomes As sticky, it and now it'll stick to digits. And if they die by a cricket and they ingest sand, it's no big deal. They die by a cricket and they ingest, you know, excavator uh, excavator clay. Who knows what that's going to do their internal organs? For sure. So. I don't use excavator clay on knobtails. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I really want to try that new uh Exo-Terra, Exoterra stuff because it's supposed to do something similar, but nowhere near as extreme.
0: Right. Uh a friend of mine is actually using it uh with Viper geckos, and uh so it's one part sand, and then the rest of the enclosure is the uh it's kind of like like the excavator clay, it's kind of hardened, whatever. Uh, she only sprays uh the sand portion and it stays uh it stays nice and hard but it's nicer than excavator clay or looks nicer than excavator clay because it's not just kind of flat there's kind of like pieces of rock in it and there's different textures yes, and, it's and crumbly it's crumbly yeah so yeah, like it does look kind of more natural yeah so i guess awesome. they had
1: they made i guess two colors they made like a, a reddish brown one and like a dark gray one a
0: dark gray blackish one yeah that's what so i've seen
1: my buddy mixed them together and it looks okay. so cool that's
0: awesome i i okay uh, I have some stenodactylus geckos that I wanted to build like a kind of a naturalistic enclosure with some, so that I might try to mix them together and see how, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so how many how many species do you have at home from the lobtails? Uh,
1: so right now, I've only got three species. I've got uh, Synctus. Okay. I've got uh, Vertebralis, which was the other species I was thinking of earlier.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and then I've got uh, Underwoodosaurus milia. Um, that's the barkers. And what's interesting is I have a handful of everything um, and I'm actually in the process of redoing my enclosures because I don't know if it's a temperature thing or if it's a space thing, but I have not had very good luck breeding this past two years. And a friend of mine who is very successful, he told me that my enclosures are too small and it's a territory thing. So now... Yeah, so now I'm probably going to upgrade stuff into like a V70 and see what that does um, because it's almost my, my basically my female synctus don't want the males near them.
0: And near them, okay.
1: They're just yeah. like no not today, get away from me. So, I'm going to do some restructuring in that
0: regard. And and do you keep them in groups or are they a pair only thing?
1: No, I do and do individuals for everything. Okay. Yep. It's easier for, uh, visual, uh, maintenance and health checks and all that. health checks. Right. Yeah. You also need to be careful because it is a proven fact that certain male species will quote unquote, breed themselves to death. And I don't mean actually, you know, performing copulation and dying. I mean, dying. the, the pursuit of a female will, uh, basically cause them to not eat, not sleep, they're always on the hunt for a oh, girl, crazy. right? And then now stress factors play a, a, a big effect. And nobody wants that. You know what I mean? We want everybody happy. So in the past I've done selective pairings where I, you know, I put them together f- f- so much time at, at hand, let them do their thing and separate back to their own enclosures. So uh once I get once I figure out how I want to do the bigger more vast I mean, say vast—it's a tub, you know—but yeah. more vast enclosures for them.
0: I mean, more space is more space.
1: More space, more space. And my good friend Elliot—I was telling you about uh, when he was doing that asper oh. research—he uh, actually devised a micro radio transponder that he made into a little backpack, and he attached it to a wild asper's back, and he would let it go, and he would track it for eighteen hours
0: and see how how long they travel and how much they move,
1: and through that. He determined that the average nephris Asper in central Queensland would traverse over 100 yards in a single night. Wow. So that's one football field.
0: Yeah, they're so moving.
1: So that gecko is on the prowl for an entire football field. And we're talking like a 25, 30-gram gecko, if that. Yeah. That's crazy to me. And now we that's keep them in, huge. you know, 40-quart tub or 30-quart tub. You know, that's
0: so realistically, bad. you can never go big enough.
1: Exactly. 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah.
1: But at the same time, if I had a 10 by 10 room, would I throw one gecko in there? No, because no. it's going to make uh, feeding difficult. It's going to make health checks difficult. It's going to make temperature gradients difficult. You'll never so, find
0: it. Yeah, you never find it. Yeah. No, but imagine a 10 by 10 room with a colony of them in there
1: it would be pretty awesome.
0: That would be, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be pretty dope. Be yeah. pretty dope. I've, always, I've always imagined doing that, just taking one of the rooms and just making it like a rainforest and throwing a bunch of dart frogs and lizards and snakes in there. But I mean, that obviously I don't think would work in such a small, like 10 by 10 would not be nearly yeah. big enough for something like that.
1: Well, it's like my buddy Zach in college. Uh, he lived in an apartment and it was a three-tier apartment and each tier had a patio, right? And it was screened in because we have bugs in Florida. Right. And the bottom tier was like When guests come over and you want to have a beer, you go to that patio. And the next one was like, oh, you want to chill out? And they're like, the girlfriend wants to, you know, relax. That's fine. And then the top one was loose. Jackson's Chameleons, Garandus, just geckos and lizards loose in there and he would just throw in boxes of crickets he had all live plants and he would go out there on a sunday morning on his coffee table and put out a little dish of baby food and just sit there with a cup of coffee and watch all the day geckos come to the table and just all communally eat the baby food out of the cup and like dude, that's awesome you know what i mean so
0: cool yeah but
1: if you had a 10 by 10 porch that was screened in appropriately in
0: south florida where it's tropical you could do that you know yeah so. I could not do that here. <laughs> they would, would survive about a month. And then, it, yeah, if, if a month. That's that's very interesting.
1: Then um,
0: then. All right. So then how hard is it to find eggs in the sand? And then are the eggs like delicate and hard, easy to crush when you uh, uh,
1: pick them the up? The running joke is if you haven't crushed an egg, you haven't bred enough of them. Okay. I don't agree with that. Um, okay. I have not yet crushed an egg.
0: Okay. so However, you haven't bred enough of them.
1: <laughs> I had, no, you're right. I, I, correct. I have not. I haven't bred enough. Of them. I have not yet crushed an egg. But I will say uh, they're not as frail as you think they are. Um, but at the same time, the hardest part is finding them and digging them up. If you have an entirely sandy okay. bottom, you know what I mean. If a lot of guys will leave the the tub really, really dry right before laying, and then they'll add a deli cup of wet sand and wet stone and rock whatever so that she automatically goes to that and then you can just take that deli cup out and just carefully sift through that deli
0: cup and is that a method you use I'm sorry what was that? Sorry is that a method that you use or do you just um, look I have, through the entire sand? Uh... I,
1: I have um, I don't like it because what happens is in my experience the girl will kick out all that wet sand to get to the bottom okay. and then realize it's too moist or too dry and then she'll climb back out. And then all that sand she kicked out, she'll just lay right there.
0: Right there in that. Okay. So,
1: yeah. you know, it depends on the girl. It depends on the species. Um, I've stopped doing that simply be- because that's what my lizards do. Um, and mom does a really good job of hiding the eggs. Okay. I don't know how anyone would ever find those eggs in the wild, like, on purpose. It would yeah. it, To me, it would be impossible. But in captivity, first thing you do, take the tub out, look underneath it. And um, that way you can just see because they're going to go very, to the bottom of the tub and they're going to lay right on the bottom.
0: So they're clear tubs then?
1: Oh, yeah. 100%. I don't know why I
0: imagine them being like black or blue tubs for some reason. I mean, I'm, you know,
1: <laughs> that, that actually might work out really well because you Darker. figure they're always watching everything. You know? Yeah. you know, the dog walks by and it freaks them out. Sees so. them,
0: yeah. Is this the sausage dog?
1: This is the sausage dog. <laughs> and now awesome. I, I, put the, uh, I put the barking geckos in the bottom. I had to move some stuff around. And now the barking geckos are eye level with the sausage dog and sausage dog sits there and he's like, do something, gecko, do something. Bark at me. <laughs> Bar- bark at
0: me. I will bark back. So. No, that's hilarious. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any dogs or cats. So I don't, I don't, but I, I, I like, I, I would love to see um, a dog interacting in, in like a, a reptile movie, like a snake moving around, just seeing if they notice it or move. So I guess you just answered my question. That's awesome. Well,
1: well it's funny, man, because he, um, he doesn't care. Like, I have in that one room, I've got so many different species in that one room. And, like, Texas indigo, five foot. He don't care.
0: Yeah.
1: He just looks at it and goes, okay. Yeah. But that little gecko, oh, he wants to eat that gecko. He, he wants that, that gecko. gecko. Oh, yeah, <laughs> he loves that gecko. Especially the hypo. It's all yellow and pretty. He's like, I yeah. can eat that.
0: Yeah. Looks like candy to him. Yeah, exactly, right? Oh, sweet. Oh, uh, That's awesome. But yeah, no, I asked about the eggs because I I had a similar experience where I I heard the same thing about uh, Stenodactylus being extremely fragile, which I'm sure they are, but I've only had like two eggs so far, so I can't really be the judge of it. But I was digging through the soil looking for them, not knowing where they were. And then my finger hit one pretty hard. I'm not gonna lie. And I definitely like moved it out of its space, shifted it, whatever. And then when I realized that was the egg, I undug it and it was fine. So I didn't, I didn't, I had to pull it out with a spoon after that because I was terrified, but um, <laughs> I, 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 well, let I me ask you if
1: on, yeah. on the uh yeah. how much substrate sticks to the fluid on the outside of the egg when it's laid?
0: None.
1: See, that's another thing that I always find interesting is on the nephorus, maybe it's, I don't know if it's because we're all using the same type of calcium-based sand or, or quartz-based sand, but the eggs get covered in sand to the point where they look like they're made of sand and i'll sit there with my finger and i'll just rub it gently and then boom there's a cream colored egg so uh, i'll do that for the most part and i know other breeders they don't have that issue i don't know if maybe my sand's too moist maybe my geckos are too moist who knows
0: but maybe my mine is too dry (laughs) yeah maybe who knows maybe who knows what the the benefit is like i'm sure like they could be sticking the sand could be sticking to the eggs in the wild as well. Maybe yeah. it's beneficial to the yeah uh, to the eggs. That's interesting. I I, I never even considered that. Now uh, I will again say that 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 I've only had them for a couple of months and that was my first clutch with them. So uh, she is looking like she's laying soon. I, I'll keep you updated. But yeah, let me be, know. It could be like a once in a in a time thing. I'll try to keep it a little more moist and see if that that changes anything.
1: Who yeah. knows, man. Who knows? But definitely look under the bottom of the tub so you don't go digging in the wrong I, spot.
0: I yeah that that, hundred percent. That's a great tip. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So now that we covered noptails, um, uh, I do want to touch on a little other things that uh, some of the yeah, other man. things that you do. Uh, so you are wearing the venom life hat. Uh, yes. Do you want to talk about keeping venomous species a little bit? How did you get into uh sure. venomous? I know you're uh you mentioned earlier you're teaching uh you teach like yeah, a module so, on, on, on Venomous Handling. Right, yeah. right.
1: So in, in the state of Florida, um, you have to a- achieve so many hours of hands-on experience to get a license to possess Venomous in Florida. So you basically have to men- you have to apprentice or intern underneath someone as a, who's a mentor. Um, there's no, sadly, there's no real criteria as to what is a mentor. It's
0: considered
1: okay. However, it's someone who's licensed and has animals in their facility. So it, depending on what you want to do, it may take a few years. It may take several years. And then eventually you would achieve set hours and experience and then get your own license. Well, underground reptiles has a a retail store in Deerfield beach, Florida. And for a while, no one was, they used to do classes on how to handle and no one was doing it for some time. And the owner of underground Ryan, he asked me, he's like, Hey man, do you want to come and, you know, watch these guys, uh, you know, not die kind of thing. Yeah. I said, sure. Well, I'm coming here, hanging out anyway. And it snowballed. And, you know, I've been doing that. I did that for about 10 years straight, uh, mentored a lot of people. And I like doing a program like that specifically because it weeds out the people that are not serious. And I don't mean that in a negative way.
0: No, absolutely um, not.
1: There are people that think they want to do it, and then they learn that they really don't.
0: Or they're too scared, or they don't, they don't have yeah, anything else to handle. It. Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. it's something that's easy. You're handling a dangerous animal that could potentially kill you. That's not something anybody can do.
1: Right. And, and I think that there are people that want to do it just for the Instagram likes. And those would, people, they're gone in like a month.
0: Like, I was about they, to say, I commend you for being a venomous keeper who is not free handling on the Instagram and on YouTube.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not difficult to not do, you know, bad safety protocol. Right. So, um, but yeah, what happens is uh, it's a very boring start. And I do that on purpose because I want to see who's dedicated. So for the first 10 weeks, you don't touch a single animal. You're just learning about the venom. You no, you're just watching, you're just watching the routine. You're watching uh, protocol and you're learning the safety protocol. And like my good friend, Henry always says, it's not a handling class. It's a safety class. It's the things that it's things that you need to know and need to learn so that no accidents or negligence happens because we can't afford an escape. We can't afford an envenomation. Those just do not happen. And we need to keep it that way. So for the first 10 weeks, there's no interacting with animals. Uh, It's actually the first four weeks is watching and learning uh, technique and protocol. You know, how to open a cage, how to walk in the room, all that stuff. And then the following six weeks is someone who is more experienced than that person is gonna remove the animal and then you're gonna clean the cage but at the same time I do reverse teaching. So what I'll do is I'll basically instruct on how everything goes step-by-step. And I mean, very, very vivid articulation step-by-step. And then after I feel that the apprentice has gotten the gist of it or gotten the hang of it, I'll have them teach the handler. What's okay. Right, so they're basically verbally articulating a step-by-step procedure on extracting that animal from the enclosure safely cleaning its enclosure, feeding it, hydrating it, whatever it is, and then putting the animal back and go so far as like step by step by step monotony, right? Just like burn in your mind, muscle memory. And we make the joke all the time. Like there's so many bad habits that we have as reptile keepers when regards to venomous, that it's, it's easier for me to teach someone who has no idea about anything about snakes than someone who's been keeping snakes for 10 years. Right. Because there's, there's habits that they don't know are bad.
0: And, or they just, that's our that our journey to engrave them. Right. 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 Okay.
1: So basically 10 weeks of that. And then we start small stuff, you know, pygmy rattlesnake, copperhead, that kind of stuff. And we slowly move on to bigger and more grandiose things. So, and then yeah. you
0: know, depending on what species you want to work with is how far you kind of go.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't do, so in Florida, there's several categories. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hold on one second.
0: Yeah. Take your time.
1: Um, in Florida, there's several different categories. The first category anybody ever gets is Viperidae, which is a weird name because it covers uh, Viperidae and Crotalidae. So true vipers and pit vipers together in one group.
0: And that's the first one you can get?
1: No, you, you, there's no first or oh, second. There's no first. That's, okay. that's, that's just, that's just typically okay. the first one that people do get because we naturally have those animals in the wild in Florida. Right. And a lot of those animals are easier to work with in terms of uh, tactics and procedures. So most people will achieve that license first, Uh, even though they don't have to, they just happen to, but some people will say, I only want to work with a lapids. So I'm only going to train with a lapids. Well, if you're learning under my tutelage, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to only teach you lapids. I'm going to teach you everything because there will be a day when you're like, you know what? I always wanted to have a rattlesnake. And if you've only worked with Cobras your entire life and you've never worked with a rattlesnake, you're going to have a problem because it's completely different. They're polar opposites. So I try to encompass all aspects of venomous keeping and husbandry and tactics and training and safety to make the most well-rounded individual that I can, for lack of a better word, produce <laughs> not to toot my own horn. But if you're going to train with me, not necessarily under me, if you're going to train with me, I need you to learn all those aspects So the goal is to get the student or the apprentice or the intern on the same page as me and my colleagues and my friends.
0: Right. Cause then one of these days it could be a danger for you guys as well. Right now, is it a one person uh, apprenticeship or do you, is it like kind of a class where there's like five, six people or. So
1: in the past it's been five, six people. The problem is when you only have so much time and you only have so many animals, it's difficult to have people gain the experience in the allotted time with the allotted animals so if you've got five people and you only have ten animals well not everyone's gonna have a full evening of training you know what i mean if you have a hundred animals and five people now you can get a lot more training a lot more experience done so we've whittled the classes down to about two or three people right now um we suspended them because of COVID and underground retail store. We redid the whole venomous enclosure and now it's so, all pretty and nice. And we're going to start classes back up in the near future. But uh, until then it's still suspended.
0: That's awesome. So you are uh, still working with underground oh, yeah. uh, reptiles yeah. to, for doing this. Yeah. They're family, man. Okay. So, so are, are you, is it just the venomous stuff you handle there? Or you, yeah. You kinda work? Okay,
1: yeah. no, right, I, cool. just, I just, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not an employee. Okay, I'm just, yeah. just family friend. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Okay. So. And then, you are also keeping some venomous stuff at home, correct? I do. In your personal yeah. collection? Yeah. What, what, kind of, uh, what kind of species do you have?
1: Uh, I have a, a wide group of different types of animals, but my focus has been African and Middle Eastern. So awesome. over the past, I'll say over the past year, I've basically whittled out anything that's North American with the exception of my Hila monster, because she's precious. Yeah. Um, I've whittled out almost everything North American, and I've whittled out almost everything Asian. Uh, so now, yeah, I have one pygmy rattlesnake that I caught two months ago in my county. And I've got the Gila monster, and everything else is African. Uh, vipers, cobras, um, wrinkles, my all time favorite. That's so, awesome. yeah, I just got uh, some uh, Pseudocerastes fieldy, which I'm very, very excited about. A very unique species, uh, Middle Eastern endemic species. And just, they're unlike any other viper you've ever worked with because where in the Middle East? Uh Sinai through northern Saudi peninsula, up into Jordan and across up into like Iraq and Syria area. But the problem is is you have an integrated zone between the next species. Um but so the, the fieldy is specifically Sinai uh southern Israel southern Jordan and northern Saudi peninsula.
0: Very cool. Okay. And so are you gonna say something about uh, why they're a uh, specialty cool species? And I guess oh, they're
1: just, they're super unique and, and they're very, very intelligent for being a, a, a stocky ambush viper. You know, we, we kind of, we always assume that the, the derpy ambush snakes are, are, are derpy for lack of a better word. And these right. are definitely not. Um, they, they rasp very much like a sawscale viper or an egg eating snake. But at the same time, they also bellow when they hiss. So they'll fill themselves up with air and they'll rasp out this this deep ominous bellow, uh, like a like a deep rattlesnake rattle. And then they're also doing that saw scale sound. So it's very, very intimidating. It's very ominous.
0: That is very cool. Yeah. Sorry, what what
1: was this species name? Pseudocerastes fieldy. Or field eye, excuse me. Scott will yell at me, it's fieldy. Uh, what was that sorry? Was it Scott will yell at me, it's fieldy.
0: <laughs> oh okay, uh, I thought. Sorry, I thought you were cr- 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 like saying the definition of, of fieldy. Um, no, no, no,
1: no. Awesome. It's actually it's named after a guy named Field. So
0: okay, okay, yeah. that that's very, very, very interesting. I'm actually heading to um, Abu Dhabi in a couple of weeks. By the time awesome. this episode is out, I would already have been there and 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 done all that. But I am going herping there, and I, I mean, it sounds like that's kind of its range. So hopefully, I can. Uh, oh, yeah. I'll get a glimpse of it or something.
1: Yeah, I, um, I actually checked uh, iNaturalist. and Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, there's was, there was one Pseudocerastis sighting. Because, I mean, let's face it. It's not that they're not there. It's that how many people are using iNaturalist when they're there, you know? Very true. And uh, there's one Pseudocerastis sighting outside of Abu Dhabi, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And I can't really tell if it's because the roads disappear. You know yeah. what I mean? The yeah, sand just
0: uh, takes it. Probably just desert.
1: Right, so I don't know if it's on a road or not, and at the same time, there you really can't tell how far away it is. You know, like it may say one inch is a hundred miles or whatever, but it, it, let's be no. real: the, the scale on the app is de- deceiving. You know, for sure.
0: And yeah. it's it's kind of like so the city's like maybe like a forty-five minute drive all around, right. and once you get like after that forty-five minutes, once you get like 10, 15 minutes out, you're in the desert and for. Miles and miles and miles on end, so yeah. it could be anywhere in there. But I'm sure, uh, like I'm sure, once you get past a certain point, it's all the same. Like you're gonna oh, see yeah. them. It's it's the same habitat. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, very interesting. And um, it's crazy
1: too. Is that the phenotypes of the same species throughout the Near East is is just phenomenal. So if you look at the Pseudocerastes that come out of the uh, uh, southern portion of the Sinai, they're very very light in coloration with almost milk chocolate dots and saddling to them. And then the more far north you go up into like Jordan and stuff. And like we, we you and I talked about the Wadi Rum. Yeah. And like that area, the rock and the and the stone is more red. It's Red's more rich correct. in color. You'll notice that the, the the base color is not so sandy. It's more of a, a wood brown, like an oak color with now even darker saddlings on top. So and That's they have incredible. they have horns on their skull much like Cerastes, Cerastes, the horned adder, or Cerastes, or Cotala Cerastes, the American Sidewinder, but instead of it being one specific scale like the Cerastes, Cerastes, it's a rosette of small scales that mounds up into a, an ominous brow line. And they have these like nodules on their face, almost like defined cheekbones. Incredible species.
0: That is, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Well, in that case, we're uh, we're gonna have to plan a trip to, to Jordan and go down to Wadi Rum someday.
1: hundred percent, hundred percent.
0: I I I I mentioned to you I've been there uh two or three times, so I've seen the Red Rock and I've I've climbed that and all, but I was just like. I was always obsessed with reptiles, but it, it never occurred to me that oh yeah, there's reptiles around me right now. Yeah, and, I mean, I was much younger as well, but sure, uh, I, I need to go back now and just specifically go herping in those areas. Hundred uh, percent, right. which is pretty much what I am doing in, uh, yeah. in Abu Dhabi this, this couple weeks. Yeah, and there's since, there's
1: cerastes outside Abu Dhabi that are literally gold, like, colored, like 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 shiny gold with like yellow flecking and and spots to them. They're stunning animals and i mean we'll never get it because of export laws but but yeah if you're definitely out there and yeah you gotta send me pictures bro i definitely will. anything i pictures. find
0: anything i'm just that's see that's my worry uh i'm worried about going out there and not finding absolutely like not finding anything
1: but dude it, listen man it doesn't matter if you find anything or not you're out there in legit desert just soaking it in
0: in their habitat right exactly yeah, yeah i'm taking i i just purchased a temperature and um the handheld hygrometer and we'll go take temperatures and check out like nice. microhabitats and all that. Like, you know, there's not much uh specifically because uh stenodactylus durae and stenodactylus era because it's from that area as well. Um and there's not much info online. So maybe try to get yeah. some data. hundred uh, percent
1: you gotta you bring in a UV index reader?
0: I'm not but maybe I should. Dude it's it,
1: I haven't bought one yet because they're expensive. Have, they're expensive, but I feel like you almost owe it to yourself as someone who's keeping middle eastern species because i know that it's got to be different than what we think it is you
0: think it's Whether, stronger or weaker
1: who knows right who knows you know i mean we we see you know i look at you know the negev desert right and i look at hundreds of photos thousands of photos and i'm looking at all these photos look at these rocks and these escarpments and these you know uh dry sand embankments where the wind has pushed the sand through the stone and made a river of sand and i'm just thinking man how much sun does that rock get compared to the rock on the other side you know and is the is the uv index on one side 8.0 and the other side's 2.0 but we never know because we look at you know weather app on the iphone it says oh
0: you know abu dhabi is
1: 7.8 well Yeah. yeah on top of the roof of the you know news station building is. or whatever yeah, yeah.
0: that's so. interesting and then and then are is the gecko sitting in the 2.0 or the 8.0 uvb or like where yeah, or is better
1: or better yeah we talk about those microclimates is the right. gecko underneath a f- two feet of fisher rock where it's 78 degrees and 80 percent humidity yeah who knows
0: while in the middle of the day when it's in the like middle of zero day zero humidity outside and like 100 degrees yeah that's that's definitely, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'm, I'm going to look it up right after this episode. Maybe I should just pick up a UV meter or see if one of my friends has one I could borrow. Oh, yeah. That's, just that's, borrow it. Yeah. That's, you're right. It's, it's probably the more important, um, like, parameter measure there.
1: And one thing, you ever watch the movie Saving Private Ryan?
0: I have. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: You know, in the beginning of the movie, when Tom Sizemore has little jars of dirt from every place he's been in battle? For sure. I'm desp I'm in dire need to get off this continent, right? And one of the things I want to do is I want to get little jars like Tom Sizemore and bring home some sand and rock and stone from these places that have gone herping. And it all started when we get, from, Underground gets a lot of shipments from all over the world. Hold on. Yeah. Excuse me. And uh, clear my throat. So Underground got to the shipments from around the world. Well, the last shipment where I got my Sarasti Sarastis from, when I, I got to open the crate and I got to cut the bags open, you know, pour out the, the vipers. Awesome. And what's at the bottom of the bag? Beautiful, smooth, golden sand. Straight so from the I, desert. straight from the desert. So I, I mean, this could be the desert in the parking lot where the guys bagged them up. I don't know. But in my <laughs> mind, it's the middle of the desert, right? Right. And I took a paper towel and I just kind of scooped it into a little cup and I took it home with me. And, and I, sprinkle some of that sand in every enclosure of the new species I got in so that at least there's some smell, some particle that says they're still at home, you know? Right, yeah. And now I know exactly what color the sand should be too. So as far as aesthetics and husbandry, uh, in my mind, I'm killing two birds with one
0: stone. You're getting one step closer, 100%. Yeah, that's very interesting. So yeah, so you think I should take a jar with me and, and collect some sand and bring it back?
1: yeah man it can't hurt and, and is dude, there if, is that allowed cust- i don't know i was just about to say if customs wants to throw it out it's dirt throw it out yeah,
0: you know true yeah i yeah that's not a bad idea well since i did want to cover uh herping in texas with you and i am going herping soon maybe you can give me uh some of those tips that you guys used in texas how hard was it over there to find uh species when you're out in the desert was it like walking up and there it is or were you guys doing like 5 6 hours of searching it to find like one uh, snake
1: yeah add add 10 to that number oh
0: yeah <laughs> yeah
1: so all right yeah it, so west texas west texas is its own monster right um you can talk to a thousand herpers who are all desert specialists and i am by no means a desert specialist i wish i was <laughs> I, that's my 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 passion my heart lies in the desert but There are species that are just sitting there like, hey, man, what's going on? Take my picture. And there's other species where you had eight seconds to take that picture and then you're never going to see it for another 10 years. So West Texas is very unique because the public access is scarce and not so limited. It, it, It is very limited. Excuse me. So we were we were limited to go to certain areas that were public public realm as well as state and uh, federal parks. And obviously you can't get hands on in a state or federal park. So depending on where we were, we had to know or get an idea of when we thought the animals were going to be on the move. Most of that was crepuscular and uh, into the wee hours of the morning. But at the same time, we did see stuff during the day, but it was split second you know, right. you moved a rock and it was under the rock and now I feel yeah. bad. Cause I just ruined his microclimate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But at the same time we got to see it,
0: but yeah, that's, just, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. He'll find another rock. I want to see it. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So uh, a lot of it was nighttime stuff because it's way cooler at night, you know? So, and from what I gather from the middle East, it's the same exact way.
0: It is. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going in December, so it won't be scorching hot when, uh, everybody's just hiding all the time. Uh, yeah what's
1: what's the it's it's december now what's the temps there
0: uh 20th, 20 20 20th. Uh, 20 20 20 degrees celsius i'm not sure what it is in fahrenheit yeah 22 right now um uh, yeah 71 percent humidity and the uv index is zero but it is it is dark uh yeah. Dark, so. yeah yeah very cool man very cool yeah no that's awesome so any any highlight species that you found there Oh man, Coleonics, 100%
1: Coleonics. Um, uh, Cortalis ornatus, the ornate blacktail. I had my hopes for that, but you never want to, you never want to have like, you never want to tell yourself, oh, I'm going to see it. That's yeah, right. Because then you're not. Right. So I was like, you know what? If we see it, great. If we don't see it, oh well. And we happen to see it. And that was just phenomenal. Okay. Seeing that animal in the wild in all of its big, powerful majesticness with the black raccoon mask they have and uh, awesome snakes. Dude, um, yeah. But honestly, like of all the cool stuff we found, the horn lizards. Did you get out. to see them? Oh, uh, we, we caught probably seven or eight of them. That's and awesome. just like looking at their natural habitat and seeing them just chilling in the wild, just at noon, just sitting there on a rock, just loving life. Like that was for at least probably for me that was probably the highlight, and I think most of the guys on the trip that was their highlight too. Because none of us were expecting to see horned toads. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, they're uh, yeah, yeah. not something easy or you expect to see, especially since they're I think still considered endangered right now, or is it bouncing back?
1: So they're they're protected in certain areas where we were. They were protected, and we we basically picked them up, looked at them, put them back down.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I heard they're not commonly found in captivity because of their uh, eating habits, and they only eat like they eat like a1,000 ants a day or something like that.:
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a1,000, but yeah. but yeah the, no, the problem I, yeah. is the problem is feeding them the ants. That's, yeah. that's it. And you know, Dr. Julander was with us on that trip, and he's actually kept them in captivity both in a science capacity and personally, and that's awesome. Uh, and they had all these different techniques for basically making fake ant mounds. And wow. producing the appropriate, you know, I think a carpenter ant, I think it is, that that they eat in the wild. And I think if you're looking to do that one of those species and you want to put all of your emphasis on that, go for it. Rock and roll. But for someone like me that has a really wide assortment of species and just species. wants to throw some crickets in every now and then, yeah, not for me.
0: It doesn't work. No, that makes sense for sure. Um, what about the uh, Coleonyx? Is this something you're, is this something you have in your collection as well? Yes. Yeah, so speed? yeah.
1: So right now I only have the Central Americans, uh, uh, Metratus. Okay. Way more tropical. Okay. J- forest floor, jungle floor, uh, leaf litter. Right. Super cool. Crazy purples and burgundies and these smooth, rounded, beveled patterns. Just awesome geckos, man. And cool. not to sound rude, but they're cheap, too. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, so, like, North American geckos, they're here. They're, they're, they're in our backyard, you, yeah. you and I, you know? Right. So, uh, I plan on getting some, uh, some Texas bandits. I think that would be really cool. But right now, I only have the Matratas,
0: so. Very, very cool. Any breeding, um, breeding projects going on that you want to talk about?
1: Uh, not really. I got uh, ge- geckos as a whole... I basically took this year off completely, let them do their thing, figure out how I want to change my cage in because I'm not right, happy mentioned with it. That. Right. Um, and then I have a ton of baby stuff that I'm growing up, you know, colubrids, pythons. Um, I actually have uh Erangia car, excuse me, West Papuan carpets. Uh, they're paired up right now. I don't know if they're actually copulated, but they're in the cage together. We'll see what happens.
0: That's awesome. So you're not just working with geckos then you do have a, a, like a wide, oh, yeah. like diverse yeah. selection of snakes. Okay. That's very
1: cool. Yeah, I would say right now the majority of my collection is a Lapids and Colubrids. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got Carpets, I've got Water Pythons, Kribos, um, Milk Snakes, King Snakes, Corn Snakes. Uh, I got one Transpecos Rat Snake. Um, i trying to think what else. That's awesome. What fighting. about...
0: No, yeah, no, that's good. Cool. What about uh Is it mm-hmm. just the Nobtails? Are you keeping anything other than... Oh, and you mentioned the... Yeah, yeah,
1: that's that's it for now. That's just it. So, okay,
0: yep, yeah very, very cool. Uh, okay, well, I think that's that's about all the questions I have for you written down here. Uh, cool, man. We're uh, already past 45 minutes anyway, so um, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on, man. I I really do appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, we can do a part two at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And uh, and I will uh, be sending you pictures. Fingers crossed if I find anything uh, very soon. I have faith. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You have more faith than me then. Um, (laughs) Do you want to let everybody know where they can find you?
1: Yeah. Easiest way to do it is to go on Instagram. It's at knobtails.ig. Just right Um, down there as well. Let me, hold on one second. Right there. I apologize for me coughing all night on camera. I oh, no, sound like problem. hell. Um, uh, I'm
0: sorry for doing this while you were. Uh, I like. Hey, who knows? knows who know. knows when you're gonna get
1: sick? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, definitely uh, Instagram, Knobtails.ig, uh, also on the Herbivore Culture Network, uh, Snakes and Stogies every Monday night live at nine o'clock Eastern oh, Standard okay. Time, um, and then uh, Nipper Reed and I have a new podcast coming out called the Venom Exchange Radio, which will be all things venom related. Uh, it's probably going to air in the new year, but definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, we'll probably promote it on both the Morelia Python network as well as the Herpetoculture network because both of us come from both of those worlds. That's awesome. And uh, Yeah, man. Lots of cool snake stuff coming soon.
0: That is awesome. I am looking forward to that uh, to the new Venom podcast. What did you say it was called? Venom Exchange? Venom by-
1: Exchange Radio.
0: Venom Exchange Radio. I love that. Yeah. and I am looking forward to learning about venomous species because that is... I mean, who's not interested in venomous species, but of I course. know literally nothing about them. So I, it's like not even possible for us to keep them up here. But one day when I moved down to the States, <laughs> sure, sure, I would sure. love that. Awesome. Thank you very much once again, man. Hey, I, I thank really you for having me. On, for it sure. was great, man. love it. Yeah, for sure. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, man. Awesome. Bye-bye.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, that was Phil Wolf from knobtails.ig. Uh, thank you very much to him for coming on. That was a great conversation. We learned so much about the knobtails, and talking about venomous species is always fun. Uh, I am Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms. Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast on all streaming platforms. And thank you very much. We will see you next time.